Uh, it's the Chance of Gaming Podcast. We are in- interviewing Tom Russell from Holland Spiel Games. Tom, thank you for joining us and for being patient. Thank you for having me. Uh, I have to say I was surprised to learn you're, you know, just in the U.S. You're from Detroit, Michigan. Because what I think of when I think of, like, Holland Spiel, when I first saw the title and I read it, Holland Spiel, I was like, I thought of it as a... It's this company like over in Germany that it you you have this big building that's very kind of art deco and you've been there for years and you kind of like uh, employ most of the village there. All these people come in and you know they work in there. They build your board games and stuff like that. It's it's an elderly population, very small village <laughs> in Germany. That's what I always thought of when I thought of Hollandspiel. I never in a million years would have thought it was an American company. <laughs> so I, it yeah. is. So how did you come up with the name? Well, uh, so my wife Mary and I came up with the name uh, several years back when we first discussed publishing what well, we thought at the time we were going to be publishing uh, euro style games and we thought it'd be funny if we had a name that sounded like a european uh, company okay. and her last name uh, her maiden last name being holland uh we decided to call it hollandspiel and when we finally did start the company and we were publishing war games we just decided you know to keep the name and uh here we are, and it, it has caused some kerfuffles. There have been some folks who uh, thought we were from Europe, and uh, the shipping was not what they expected. Uh, people from <laughs> Europe ordering games, but um, you know, generally, I think we're, we're doing pretty well getting the name, getting getting out there with who we are, and that, and uh, we're sticking with the name, so it, it works. We actually had someone not too long ago. Uh, who asked us to change the name of, of the company, and uh, we said no, we're not, we're not doing that. that Why would uh, they want you to change it? Uh, because it made them think that we were from Europe and they ordered uh-huh. the games and we shipped them <laughs> and they had to pay customs fees and whatnot. And oh, okay. Now, so you guys are kind of known as just being very like niche type stuff, sort of. To me, it seems like it's. It's a lot of you, you guys work with a lot of well-known designers and whatnot, and it's just these people that are like, you know, hey, I've got an idea for a game, you know, and it's a little odd, and we'll just we'll do it over here at Hollandspiel. It just seems really, really neat. I know you have like Ty Bomba, um, Lou Cotney, you know, uh, several of them that I just, yeah, it's just kind of interesting that they chose you how does that work do they approach you or do you approach them you know with like um hey i have an idea for a game i think you'll be great or how does it work well it it varies from project to project um especially early on we were doing a lot more seeking out designers and approaching them and saying hey do you have anything that you might want us to publish we'd love to work with you uh, or in the case uh, Ty Bamba, the first game he did for us, which was uh, Operation Unthinkable, I wanted a game on that that topic, that uh, hypothetical uh, battle plan, and I know that I wouldn't be able to design it, and he's well-known for hypothetical games, so we asked him if he would do it, and he said, sure. Um, these days, people are more likely to approach us 
And part of that is that we've just stopped kind of aggressively headhunting like we were early on. Because right now we have, I don't know, 15 or 20 games in our production queue. So right now we're not we're not actively seeking out more games. We're trying to get the ones we have out the door. Uh, you know, we still look at submissions as we get them, but uh, we're generally not seeking them out uh, at at the moment the way we were before. Um, so that's generally how how it works. We have had some designers who have just come in and approached us, like a Richard Berg. We didn't go after Richard Berg. He came out. He came came to us. So we're like, you know, sure, we'll uh, take a look at your stuff. And uh, we, we published uh, Dynasty last year, which was one of his. Do you okay. ever do you ever get him confused with Richard Borg? <laughs> I mean, when I first got into the hobby, I did, but uh, uh, since I've you know become a published designer, I mean, their the, their games are different enough that I I don't uh, I don't get them confused, and certainly. Richard uh, Berg has a very unique personality, and uh, so no, I, I am, haven't confused them as much anymore. I know it's just something we talk about on the podcast all the time. You know that, per, that, that we should start a rumor that there's a conspiracy theory that they're the same person. Just you know, it's just a split personality. He does one one way, does the other. Yeah, but you know, anyway, just a joke. Uh, you know, speaking of designing. One thing that you design, I, I believe, that I think is really cool, it's super sexy, is table battles. What oh, made thank you, you. Yeah, what made you put that together? Uh, well, it, it started pretty pragmatically. Uh, during our first year of in business, we decided that during the holidays, during the Christmas season, that as part of the sale, we want to give people like a, a small free game. And... I needed a small free game that uh, would basically be a couple pieces of cardstock and people could supply their own dice and bits. And I created something called Christmas at White Mountain. And uh, it did okay. Uh, people who played it seemed to enjoy it. That was basically the core rules of what became Table Battles. And then fast forward a bit, and we're actually getting ready to publish uh, Richard Berg's Dynasty. And we had to order uh, wood bits from our wood bit supplier in Germany. And some of the bits that were needed uh, were pieces for the Great Wall of China. And they're long, rectangular uh, sticks. And in order for the price of each bit to come down, to go to that next tier where the price becomes uh, more affordable for us, we needed to order so many wooden sticks. So I ordered a bunch of wooden sticks in different colors and then need to figure out some way to use them in a the game so they wouldn't take up too much room in our uh, back bedroom. And uh, I took the rule set from Christmas of White Mountain, and I took the sticks uh, that I had ordered in bulk and came up with tail bales to use that. And I, I thought, well, this would be a way to use up those that those sets of sticks that I ordered. And, um, you know, it might do okay, and it did more than okay, and we keep having to order more sticks, so it's been pretty pretty good for us. Yeah, I, I think it's really cool. I, it's just really sexy, and yeah, I really think a lot of it is more uh, like if I was a commander and moving things around, and yeah, it just has that cool look to it to me. Uh, I've seen a couple of... Um, just a couple of uh, games that are similar like that with the sticks, and yeah, I just dig it. It it really, really is just cool to me. So yeah, 
I uh, that's that's definitely one that has piqued my interest. I tell you another one that I really like because I like World War One and I like the French is the Big Push. Can you tell me anything about that? Yeah, so that's a game designed by Renaud uh, Verlac. Verlac. Um, he also designed uh, Age of Napoleon that came out a few years back and is being reprinted by Phalanx uh, sometime in the next year or so. Uh, so that is a, a two-player game. Uh, it's World War One Western Front. And uh, the game really is a card game. I mean, we have a, a board to place the cards on, and we have uh, uh, some counters to use to track things. But at its heart, it's, it's really a card game where you have these kind of big hands of cards, and you have these five or six uh, fronts, and you're putting the cards face down in the fronts, assigning them, uh, and then flipping them over and playing extra cards to modify the strength of your guys to win uh, on that particular front, and you win so many fronts, you get so many points, and then each year you try to get more points. But a big part of it is you have this big hand, and you're like, I have plenty of cards. I can take care of everything on all these fronts with all these cards. And then as you start playing them, you realize, I don't have that many cards as I thought I did, and I need to make some really tough choices as to where I want to put that and where I think the other guy is going to put his cards. And it creates this, this nice, tense... Uh, back and forth in this 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 bluffing situation. So it's not really a very good game for um, for solitaire play for people who play war games where they play both sides. But um, for a two player game uh, that will give you the feel of World War One for in the course of ninety minutes or two hours. I mean, it's it's just really fun and I really enjoy it. And that was a game where he he came to us with that game and we're like, yeah, this is great. Would love to publish this so when these guys come to you they they're like i have an idea i have an idea for a game do they come with you with like the art or you know any anything like that or is it just kind of something you have to kind of bang out in house do you rely on them to do it or you know uh, how is it done so as far as like the mechanics of the game and the specifics of you know how many cards there are what's on each card that kind of stuff Generally, that's all done before it's given to us. Now, it might be in play testing that we find things that we need to tweak a little bit. I might make suggestions. But generally, they do turn and finish designs to us. And that's kind of what we're looking for rather than an idea for a game. But as far as the art, I mean, that's generally something that we do handle in-house. Uh, we have a handful of artists that we work with who tend to do mostly just the map sheets. Um very occasionally we'll have them do the cards. For example, the artist who did the map sheet for Big Push, uh, Ilya Kudryashov, he also did the cards for that game. Generally, the cards and counters is stuff that I do. Um, not because I think I'm the world's greatest graphic designer, because I'm not, but because um, I don't have to pay me. <laughs> and and our, our the way our business works with our print-on-demand model, any game we publish generally is going to make a profit as long as we keep the overhead down. So as long as the art costs aren't too much, um, we can publish anything that we want to publish, even something that necessarily isn't, wouldn't be a hit for another publisher. Uh, a good example uh, is one of my more popular games is uh, Supply Lines of the American Revolution. And 
I think if any other publisher had done that, it probably would have lost money uh, if they had to print like because this is a very weird, very niche game, and if they had to print it in kind of a massive run that have a lot of unsold copies. Whereas we, with our model, every time someone orders a copy and gives us money for it, our printer prints the copy and sends it to them, and then we pay the printer for it. So there's like no cash flow problem there where we have unsold copies because the only the number of copies that are sold and the number of copies that are made. The profit margin is lower. It's significantly lower than with a traditional print run. But there's no financial risk. And so as long as we're able to keep the art costs down, uh, we're, we're able to keep the lights on, you know. Um, so that's one reason why I tend to do the covers, the counters, and the cards. Um, I don't do the map sheets because I just don't have the talent for it, really, or the time. Richard, did you need to say something? I, I think I felt stepped on you a while ago. <laughs> no, that's okay. I was just going to ask about, uh, so you were talking about big-name designers, and you've got a Mark Kerman game coming out. Uh, it's called Ribbit. I saw that. I yeah. um, I thought that looked interesting. It At first look, it kind of reminded me of a game that I just recently picked up and, and played for the first time yesterday, Root, where it's a war game hidden inside a cute little animal game. Yeah, I, I I haven't actually played Root yet. I have, I actually have it right here next to me. Yeah. Here, got the cats and everything. I can see the Marquita cat there. Yeah, but I have haven't been able to play it yet. Um, I'm very excited too, though, because I'm I'm a big fan of, of Cole's work, of course, and the uh, uh, infamous traffic that he did for us has been a very uh, very big hit for us. Um, so I, I like I like everything he does, but um, so I don't know how similar. It would be to Ribbit, but uh, I do enjoy Ribbit quite a bit. And Mark Herman is one of my favorite designers, so getting to work with him on that was really uh, like achieving a a, a goal, as it were, as a publisher. Like, yes, I I got to work with Mark Herman. I hope I'll get to work with him again uh, soon and often. You know, uh, he was uh, just a pleasure to work with, uh, very generous with his time, uh, very good with uh, even with, with business advice. Um, so it, uh, it was a really great experience again, that out there. And it's a really great game. You know, um, our, our core market tends to be definitely more war game, war games, but, um, it, publishing an abstract game like that or Ty Bomba's game, boom and zoom, uh, as someone who enjoys abstract games, um, it was just, just very satisfying to get those out into the world. So you talked about your core market. Um, when I think of Hollenspiel, I think of smaller footprints, um, a lot of solitaire-friendly games, um, which obviously there's I, – I know lots of war gamers that really appreciate that just because it's hard to find people to play with. Um, is that because that's what you prefer or – I mean do you have a dream to make a, a big 120-hour game someday or is this is, – are you happy with, with doing this? I'm happy with doing this. Um, part of it is, in order to publish a game, of course, we need to be able to test it and develop it. And the table space that we have, I'm sitting at the table right now, and it is, I mean, maybe five, six feet uh, across on one side, if that. And that's the long side. So I can't really fit anything other than maybe a... 22 by 34 inch map and really depending on how much 
how many groceries we have around, more of a 22 by 17. And we have two cats in the house, so nothing on the table stays undisturbed for more than a couple hours. And so as a result, almost all our games that, that I design uh, max out about two or three hours and have uh, smaller maps. And of course, the uh, the smaller the maps and the fewer the number of counters, the less expensive the game is for us to produce, and that allows us to put it out there for a lower price point. And generally, if the game is available at a lower price point, it's going to sell more copies than the game at a higher price point. So, uh, you know, we had someone approach us with an 18xx game, which I, I enjoy those games. I don't get to play them very often because I don't have a lot of table space or table time. But um, we, we, we looked at it. We seriously looked at, 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 you know, can we do this? And just the way it would, our production model works, the, the way that the price in the game works, there'd be a game with like a triple digit price tag and would barely make anything. And that just didn't make sense to us. So there's certainly a limit on what we can do as far as what's feasible and what, what the, the market will uh, accept. Um, you know, because, I mean, we, we could, uh, because the price in the game depends a lot on, on those components. And, I mean, we, we can put more stuff into a box, but the more we put in the box, the more expensive the game is going to be. And, and will, you know, Joe Q consumer pay that much for the game that's in that box so we tend to go more for smaller stuff so some of my games uh, have been larger but only only by degrees by increments you know um they tend to have a, a smaller form factor though because that's just i guess it's just what i lean towards yeah how do you do your advertising? I know I think I've seen you on Facebook, and I know there's a a huge Hollenspiel thread on Board Game Geek. Is it mostly stuff like that, or conventions? It's, most, uh, it's mostly stuff like that. We this year we actually went to conventions for the first time, like as Hollenspiel, um, and I'm not sure how much conventions do for us as far as as getting new eyes on our game because of how niche we are. Um, and I know early on we were doing uh, banner advertisements and that on, on some websites, and there wasn't really a significant uh, difference in sales uh, with a game that had a banner advertising versus one that didn't. It seems for us the biggest thing is the word of mouth and kind of maintaining a, a presence and a personality, as it were online so stuff like the facebook and the twitter uh we have a a podcast we do every week or two uh and that kind of stuff i think that kind of direct interaction with customers i think does a lot more than if we were to do more traditional advertising just because of of how niche we are now if we were publishing games that were going for a larger market they were going into stores uh, I could see us going a more traditional route with the advertising, but that's not something that we're really interested in. So uh, we just kind of are slowly trying to grow our niche uh, through uh, word of mouth. Yeah, yeah uh, I definitely. Yeah, I I think of you guys as kind of like niche type, you know, stuff. And if you, I, I want to say this is correct, and of course I can edit this so it sounds much <laughs> cooler. Um, 
you guys are just direct only. You don't have your stuff like out at like miniature market or you know anywhere else. Is that is that correct? That's more or less correct. There are a couple of stores that have purchased our games from us um, and then sell them uh, either online or via via retail in, in, in a you know brick and mortar store, um, but nothing widespread. And because the way our pricing works, because our profit margin is is so slender, because each one's printed on demand, so it's much more expensive to produce each unit, um, we can't really offer the kind of discounts that they expect. Most retailers, the the, the kind of cut that, that, that they would need, um, if we were to sell to them at that price, we would be selling it at a loss. So for a lot of retailers, it doesn't make sense, especially uh, retailers who are overseas. It hasn't really made sense. Um, some get kind of angry with us because they're like, why don't you just uh, publish games normally? And it's like, that's uh, they're not normal games. <laughs> yeah, why be normal? You, you yeah. don't have to, yeah. Um, which is, but that's one reason why uh, we offer print-and-play editions of all our games at, at, at a much reduced price. So people who are in Europe or Asia who want to play our games but you know don't want to pay all that shipping and customs, I mean they they can buy it online and they can print it and, and make their counters and um, that that option is available. It's not for everybody, but uh, and we don't really make money on on those uh, at all, but uh, very little. But it's. You know, if, if it helps get it out there and helps alleviate some of that pain, we're you know we're happy to do that. And that's done through Wargame Vault, correct? That's correct. Okay, yeah, I thought so. Now, looking at your games, the most expensive one is Horse and Musket: Dawn of an Era. At least as as of the time we record this. Um, yes. Why Why is it so expensive? Well, um. It has five counter sheets. Um, what we pay for a full sheet of counters is what most publishers pay. Eh, what most publishers pay for a complete game. So we have five of those sheets in there, and we have two thick rule books, and we have a larger map, and we have a bunch of dice. But uh, and the counters, um, three of them. Three of the sheets are hex tiles. So as you'd find like in uh, commands and colors kind of game. And two sheets are uh, square unit counters. But it's, it's, it's that expensive for that reason. And really that game, uh, the percentage of, of profit we get from that is, is much less than our other games. And much less than the other games in the series. Uh, so in a way, it's kind of a loss leader for us. So we, we put that one out there at the lowest price that we could. Um, and then we're able to offer the expansions at a, a $45 uh, price point. That's $40 less for the expansion, which itself has 20 scenarios. The base game has 20 scenarios in it. So you have, if you play each scenario just one time, you know, you, you have 20 hours, 25 hours of, of, of playing time there. So we think it's it, it's good for that that price, you know, it's a good value f for that price. But you know, if we could have priced it cheaper, we, we you know we would have. But that's uh, 
just just kind of what we, we ran up against. And uh, with working with Sean, the designer, Sean Chick, on the expansions, we have tried to make sure that we keep those expansions at that $45 price point, that they don't go above that. Because um, Sean is the sort of guy who likes to add stuff as he goes along. And it's kind of the whole point of, of the series is that you start with the first game, and of course it's six volumes, you're going to see the history of warfare and how it changed from the late 1600s up through the American Civil War. And we had to say, Sean, we, we <laughs> had this number of counters. We can't go over this. We can't do We do another sheet of counters. The price goes up again. So we need to keep that price where where it is for the expansions. You know, we kind of got to rein him in a little bit while still supporting his vision and still making it the game he wants it to be. Because it's very important to us that we're a very designer-focused company. The, the point of reference we often use, excuse me, is a DVD label, the Criterion Collection, which is very director-focused. Right. And we want to approach designers with the same respect that the Criterion Collection approaches directors. So the designers have a final cut, as it were. We have control over, over the art, but they're looped in on that process. Right. So um, Horse and Musket uh, certainly is the biggest game we've done. I don't think we're going to do one that big again. Um, it, it is more expensive than our other games, uh, but by a long shot. I mean, none of them are close to that. And still, as far as war games go with 20 scenarios and five sheets of counters, I mean, there are more expensive games. But so that's, does that answer the question? Oh yeah. I, I, okay. Yeah. yeah. Just curious. Cause I, I oh, like look at your current catalog and you, you, I just go in and I kind of sort it from price high to low and uh, it's the first one. So I was just curious as to what, what bits and fiddly yeah. stuff that made, made it more expensive. And uh, interestingly enough, it's 85 bucks through you guys. And what you talked about with the print-on-demand, you can buy this mm-hmm. game for $15 this is from true. Uh, from uh, Wargame Vault. Mm-hmm. Now, looking at the opposite end of that, the cheapest game that like isn't an expansion or anything seems to be Grunwald Swords. Uh, yeah, well, we have a few games that are in that $30 range. Uh, Grunwald oh, yeah, Swords. That's true. There are like... Yeah. Oh yeah, there's several. There's like five. Sorry. Um, yeah. That's, oh, it's okay. No, that's that's. It's, uh, it's just the one that's sorted at the end, and it yeah. has this nice green cover. So, uh, yeah, and it, it, let's just you know taking a look at it. It's probably it's just a much less when it comes to it looks to be like one map, and just one sheet of counters is is what it looks like. Yep. That's correct. Yeah. Yes, one map and 88 5 eighth counters and one eight-sided die rule book and yeah, there you go. So uh, all this stuff is is print on demand. So does anything ever kind of go quote unquote out of print? Stuff that you guys did do and now just like okay, our agreement with the designer passed and we're we're not doing that right now. Okay. Well, we haven't come across that yet. Uh, we what we do though is we do license the games from the designer the designer maintains the rights to the game we're just you know borrowing them for a little while and when the term expires we then can 
uh, taught to them and do they want to renew and they want to renew then you know, we renegotiate as we need to um, we haven't had that happen yet because none of the terms have expired yet we've only been in business for two years and one month so um, we haven't come across that yet but I mean th- that will happen eventually um, the only other way things would go quote unquote out of print uh, would be things that need specialty bits, the wood bits and the cards. And that would only be for a temporary time while we wait for our card printer or our, our German wood bit supplier to send us more wood bits or more cards. So, because those are the things that are ordered in bulk, whereas everything else counters, map, all that's printed on, on demand as it's ordered. But uh, we have to order the wood bits in bulk and we have to order the cards in bulk. And, you know, when those run low, we got to wait for more to be printed. Okay. Just curious. Speaking of, like, what is coming up, um, what games do you have coming on the horizon? I know our close personal friends um, are, that are doing Brave Little Belgium, that is a uh, game that we've pushed really hard, uh, talked mm-hmm. about on the podcast. Richard has been playtesting for it. I know it's coming um, from Holland Spiel. Is there anything? What else is on the horizon? Well, uh, in the next couple days, we're going to be releasing Meltwater, which is a game by Aaron Lee Escobedo. It is the Cold War goes hot, but then goes cold again. In that, it takes place in Antarctica after a nuclear war. Um, so that one's coming out. We have NATO Air Commander, which is a solitaire uh, World War III 1980s set game. That uh, one looks out. fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I really <laughs> enjoyed that one, and it's it's one that um, that was one that was pitched to us as we were just starting the company, and we've been working working with him with Brad, the designer Brad Smith, uh, on the game pretty much since we started the company. So to get, finally get that out on people's tables is really exciting. And that'll be the first game for October. We'll have Horse and Musket Volume 3 coming out later in October. Uh, November will be This Guilty Land, which is one of my designs. Uh, December, we'll see the release of the Sioux Line, which will take us through to the end of the year. Uh, that's a train game. That's another one of my designs. Um, and then well, in January, when, when is it released? Uh, the, the Sioux the Line? Yeah. Uh, that will probably be released... It'll be in December. We'll probably release it concurrent with the uh, holiday sale. Um, we, we've got the art. Uh, we're waiting on the card proof to come from the card printer. And then we'll have to get the rule book put together and get that proof and make sure everything is as it should be. We've ordered the wood bits and are waiting for those to arrive. And they should be here by uh, late October or mid-November. So we'll have time to sort and bag them up because we do that all here either on our porch or on our our kitchen table um and then uh next january start of the year we'll most likely see the release of brave little belgium it might get pushed into like february or so but we'll be in that first quarter and we you know we have we have a bunch of i mean we release we try to release four or five games a quarter so we we keep busy (laughs) you know yeah, you guys, you've been in business just over two years, and you've got, what, 36 games either out or are coming soon? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I, I know I'm really excited for Meltwater. I think that is, I, I love the, just it's just sort of an original idea, and that really attracts me 
to it, you know, that it's it's post nuclear war set in Antarctica. Yeah, I'm I'm all for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's you know, I, I played the game and I was really uh just wowed by it, especially for it being a, a first time design. If if my first design had been anywhere near as well put together and well thought out and, and, and accomplished as that one, I mean who who knows where I'd be now. But uh no, it's it's really something special. So is this an example where he came to you with a, a game design? She she came to us. She, yeah. okay. So we talked about um, – I, I asked sort of how you have a, a theme of, of smaller, solitaire-friendly games, um, and I and asked if that's the type of game you play. But is that – I don't know how you have time to play when you're publishing 36 games in two years, but um, what do you like to play in, in your spare time? Uh, so when, when I'm not – so th- th- there's there's kind of an old uh, saw that uh, once you start designing or publishing games, you only end up playing your own games. And that's not 100% true, but, I mean, I'm pretty much playing Hollenspiel games most of the time. Uh, every once in a while, uh, we'll, we'll go out and meet some friends and we'll play, uh, we'll play an 18xx game or we'll play a uh, kind of Euro game. Uh, and they're fine. I used to be more into the Euro style games uh, previously uh, than I am now. I think having uh, accidentally become a war game designer, <laughs> I uh, um, I kind of play war games so frequently that I, I kind of don't enjoy the Euro games as much anymore. That's not really a very satisfying answer, but you know, I, I I play some train games, I play some Euro games. Every once in a while, I get a war game that's not a Hollenspiel game, you know, on, on the table. But we spend a lot of time just just playing our our, our own games. So, uh, but I definitely prefer things. I don't want to see things that are that are simpler because that makes it sound like I just like light games. But games where there isn't a whole lot of rules overhead, there's complicated decisions to make. But decisions aren't complicated because uh, the rules are overly ornate. Yeah. You know, I prefer things that are more streamlined. Do you have a favorite era that you like to play? Of, uh, of, like of a war games? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I really have a, a favorite era. I don't play a lot of modern stuff. I don't play a lot of World War II games. I mean, I do play them. I do push some panzers now and then. But I tend to play... Uh, Napoleonic era, American Civil War, uh, ancients, and kind of Middle Ages, anywhere in between there. So it, it, it definitely varies. Um, yeah, I'm I'm really interested in all sorts of uh, history and all sorts of games. So, do you play any miniature games off by chance? N- uh, not really. Um, I played some miniatures adjacent games uh, like. Uh, Back in the day, uh, me and the guys would play Blood Bowl, and uh, I was oh, yeah. terrible at it. But uh, it's fun, though. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 so I don't know if I'd call that a min because when I think of a miniatures game, I'm thinking of you know breaking out the tape measure, and I have not played any games where you have to break out the tape measure. But games that have miniatures, yeah, I played Blood Bowl. It has miniatures in it. Okay. Yeah. Just, just curious, and um. Mm-hmm. 
I, I have a friend that's a really big fan of yours, and he's a really big fan of train games, and he'll be very disappointed to know that you kind of passed on the 18xx game, because <laughs> that's like his, his whole thing. Uh, is there anything you could tell me about that particular game, like where it was based at or, or, or whatever, you know? You know, I, I don't actually remember... Because this, this was pitched to us, like, way early on. And I don't remember what it was uh, based on or, or, or what the gimmicks were. I, I, I It was one that was supposed to be very good for two players. And that was also an area of primary interest for us. Uh, but uh, because of the expense uh, of, of the bits, and then also because of the expense of the license, because... Um, a lot of 18xx games that, that are published uh, aren't "quote unquote" official 18xx games. They've been licensed uh, through uh, through Francis Tresham. Uh, but it was important to us that if we were to do an 18xx game, that we did get the license, so that Tresham, who who you know created the the entire genre. I mean, every, every 18xx game borrows quite heavily from from his original designs and we felt it was important that he be compensated for that so we, we did seek out uh what the licensing uh arrangements were and those arrangements were, were quite fair but they were not really conducive to our model you know if we're doing a traditional print run Though that licensing agreement would make sense for us with, with the higher costs involved in producing the games, um, we basically would have you know a triple-digit price tag, uh, and almost all the money would go towards that royalty, and that doesn't make sense for us as, as a publisher, as someone who you know is, is make, trying to make a, a, a full-time living uh, from, from publishing board games. So, uh, but th- so that was the other... Now, if there was a way to do an 18xx game with, like, one sheet of tiles, we could maybe swing that. But I don't know how that's possible. So. Huh. Hmm. Okay. And so this is, like, what you do for a living is just publish mm-hmm. board games. It's not, like, a secondary job or anything. Y- yeah, this, this, is, this is my actual job. It's, it's, it's the best job in the world. I uh, Now, when we started the company, we figured, well, if we were lucky... Uh, maybe five, six years down the road, we could maybe talk about making this full time. Uh, and then six months later, I, I'm doing it full time. So it turned out real well for us. Um, and a lot of that was infamous traffic, really. Uh, that game got us in the black and it got a lot more attention on our games than we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So even the other games that weren't infamous traffic, they all benefited from that game and from the heightened profile that that game gave us. And uh, the other thing is we were planning when we started on publishing a, you know, about a game a month, uh, give or take. And we kind of accidentally published two games in a single month. We weren't planning on doing that, but one got pushed back. And we didn't want to push all the other ones back, so we did two in one month. And those games sold fine. They weren't bestsellers or anything, but they did well enough uh, that it equaled what I was making at my day job. And my day job, I had to work 
10, 11 hours a day, uh, sometimes six days a week, uh, with an hour drive to go into work and an hour drive to come home. And so it, it, that started to be a lot less attractive. But we could see that, well, if we could get about five games out of quarter and they all do okay, we'll have enough money to live on. If one of them does better, then, you know, that's gravy. That's pretty much uh, how I got the, the best job in the world. I mean, I, I really uh-huh. can't complain. I wake up in the morning and I play board games. And my boss is my wife and my best friend, and my commute is going down the stairs. So, I mean, it really, I, I'm really very blessed, and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool deal. And I know a lot of people in the industry kind of like want that to be, to be able to be like, okay, this is all I do. This is my thing. And yeah, I go from there. But it's it's not there for a lot of people. Yeah, it really, it only works for us because we're niche and because of the model we have that allows us to be profitable without that financial risk. Because there are certainly people who can be very successful with the games but the financial risk is, is, is so great that they can't take as many chances, and it's, it's harder to make it a, a you know a day to day living thing. You know, the, the story that I keep coming across is uh, Glory to Rome. I think that was just in uh, there was an article about that again recently, where um, the the fella who owned the company and, and ran the Kickstarter lost his house while 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 running this successful Kickstarter. And, and that's just that's just that's that's sad. And, and that 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 is there is so much risk involved with publishing. And I would say if, if print on demand didn't exist, you know, we we wouldn't exist because I did not come from a background where I had a lot of disposable income uh, at all. And if there wasn't room for this niche. Uh, for for these type of very odd games, and I don't know if that market was there even five years ago. Uh, I don't think we'd be able to make it work. So I think that the timing has been just just right. Um, and of course, now that we're able to do it full time, we're able to get better games out the door, and we're able to put more time into the games and do more games. Because previous to doing it full time, you know, it's trying to do it an hour here, an hour there on a weeknight and instead of going out on the weekend, spending the weekend trying to get a game out, you know, so it, uh, I'm very lucky it turned out. Okay. All right, cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on with this and, you know, I think when I initially talked to you, we, we were going to talk about, uh, this guilty land, but you've been interviewed by about (laughs) 10, 20 other people since then. You everything that has been said about, you know, that can be said has been said about that, you know, and so I just wanted to kind of talk to you about just the company and just different stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, with this, is there, uh, anything else you kind of want us to know? With Hollandspiel, and I'm sad to learn that you're not, like, the main employer of a small eastern German uh, village, but, you know, hey, it's, it's, it's okay. You have an awesome beard that I can see, and there you go. <laughs> oh, thank you. That, that's very kind. Um, uh, no, I mean, uh, I'm, I am the luckiest and happiest man in the world, so I, I get to play board games all day. I get to make weird games that... No one else in their right mind would publish, and I, I somehow make a living from it. So, 
Um, I, I am. That's just who I am and where I am. And I, I, I tell you, I, I've been full time at this for a year and a half, and uh, it's been the best year and a half of my life. And I'm so happy that this is this is my life every day. So it's it really living the dream. And um, I can't really think of anything uh, else other than uh, yeah. Buy, buy our games. I, I don't know. It's, it's our, we, have, we have games out there. Absolutely. When, when's the next sale coming up? Is that the holiday sale? The next like sale sale will be the holiday sale. And there we'll have, I think the plan is to have everything on sale again like we have the previous years. We'll have a much bigger catalog this time. I know our printing partner is looking at offering some uh, component upgrades for some things. I can't. Excuse me, I can't talk about those yet, but you know there will be some kind of upgrades. Some people can look at that if they aren't going to buy more games, but they should buy more games. Because if you buy at least two games, as we did the previous two years, you will get a free game. And in this case, the free game is a free card game. It's not a piece of cardstock where you have to come up with your own components. It is a full, playable, right-out-of-the-box, very small card game that we're giving to people for free when they order at least two games. Nice. And, and when is the holiday sale? Uh, I think the plan is like December 1st through 14th or 15th. I, the dates might not be exact there, um, but you usually run it for two weeks. We usually run it from like the beginning of the month. So, I mean, that's kind of the plan. Okay. Yeah. I know on my list, I've got, table battles uh i want horse and musket simply because it's the most expensive thing you have and it i just dig that error anyway and um the other thing on my list uh of course you know besides brave little belgium you know when it comes back comes out is the big push because mm-hmm. that i'm i really really dig that time period and setting so yeah That'll be it. Of course, I may be, uh, I may have to get Ribbit because you know it's it seems like it's getting a lot of hype right now. I'll, I'll have to see how it's done, and I really dig the, the components look cool for it, and so yeah, I can't wait. You know, because gamers by and large are cheap. We're used to you know you know find, going to like miniature market or whatever and getting it on sale, and like oh wait, he's a niche company. I can't do that. I'll wait. I'll wait till the holiday sale, and then I'll I'll make sure he has a nice Christmas. That's what we'll do. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I just picked up Table Battles and Optimatis and Popularis because I've been wanting that one for a while. So, Okay. Thank, thank you. Thank and, you and, as well. That's, yeah, and I'm looking forward to that uh, that that modern NATO game. That one looks interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is. It's a, it's a very good solitaire game. And, uh, you know, the solitaire games – solitaire games do very well. Um, and th- th- this, this should have been obvious to me from the start, but when we first started, we had one solitaire game. That was uh, Agricola, Master of Britain. And I was really surprised by how well it did and had to kind of scramble to get the next one ready. So uh, we're, we're definitely planning on trying to get two or three Solitaire games out each year. Um, yeah. So because de- people definitely uh, want that. And, you know, why not? Yeah, especially those smaller footprint games where you mm-hmm. can, you know, you can take them with you. You can take them to a coffee shop or whatever and play them wherever. There's a lot of games I have, big war games that are solitaire friendly, but I certainly can't take them with me anywhere. So, yeah, I kind of want Objective Shreveport too, because it's Shreveport is about two and a half oh, yeah. hours from from where I sit right now. So. Neck of the woods. 
It is. So yeah, I've been there, drove through there several times. So yeah, just curious. Uh, yeah, all. all uh, so John Tyson uh, designed that, and he has uh, he's done three uh, Civil War games for us, and one Napoleonic game for us. Um, and they're all operational games, so it's all about like maneuver. It's not about having a bunch of guys in a line, but about trying to sneak around and uh, trying to get to grips with the guys so that uh, you actually can do battle and they're trying to escape the battle. And you have all this, this lovely uh, maneuver stuff going on. And uh, Shreveport's a good one. I, I enjoy that one quite a bit. It's a uh, nice town, too. Yeah, Louisiana, <laughs> is it's a completely different country if you've never been there. It really, really is. If you think you're from America and you've lived your whole life there, go to, like, Louisiana, and you'll be like, what country am I in? You know, it's it's strange. <laughs> and I, I live in Mississippi. I'm right next door. It, it really is. They have their own, like, food, culture, language, everything. And when you get down to it, uh, like, uh, all the American states have counties, not Louisiana. Louisiana has parishes, yes. and you know, just just different stuff like that. It's it's a great little place. I've I've always dug it. It's nice living next door to it. But yeah, if you haven't been there, go there. It's a different country. So anyway, keep that in mind. Yeah, angry Louisiana people don't don't at me. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming on our little podcast, our little show, and talking to us about your fantastic company. And we look forward to giving you money in the future. Thank you for giving it to me. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome.